Welcome to Policy, Guns and Money, the ASPE podcast. I'm your host, Kelly Smith. Today, we bring you an episode dedicated to ASPE's latest publication, Weaponized Deepfakes, National Security and Democracy. Co-authors Hannah Smith, researcher here at ASPE's International Cyber Policy Centre, and Catherine Manstead, Senior Advisor for Public Policy at the ANU's National Security College, and who you might recognise as co-host of the National Security Podcast, talk with Danielle Cave, our Deputy Director of the International Cyber Policy Centre. Here's the conversation now. Hi everyone, my name is Danielle Cave and I'm the Deputy Director of the International Cyber Policy Centre here at ASPE. I'm joined today by Hannah Smith, who is a researcher with us in the International Cyber Policy Centre, and Catherine Manstead, who is a Senior Advisor for Public Policy at ANU's National Security College. She's also a non-resident fellow at the Alliance for Securing Democracy at the German Marshall Fund of the US and the Harvard Kennedy School's Belford Centre for Science and International Affairs. Welcome, Hannah and Catherine. Great to be here. Thanks, Daniel. We're spending time together for a number of reasons. We all like one another. Also, the two of them are launching um, a paper for us on deep fake technologies that I'm very excited about. And we're going to have a virtual roundtable that I think has already got a couple hundred people RSVPing within 24 hours, which is a bit terrifying. But I'm going to ask these two a bunch of questions about this paper and about this topic. And Hannah, I'm going to start with you. Let's keep it really simple for this first question. What is deepfake technology? Are all digital forgeries deepfakes? And while you're hovering on this question, can you also tell us what on earth is a cheap fake? Right. It's, it's usually the first question that comes out of people's minds um, and their mouths, sort of, what is a deepfake? Well, it's, it's a digital forgery that's created through a process called deep learning, which is a subset of artificial intelligence, and it essentially creates entirely new content or seeks to manipulate existing content. So you have a computer that can draw on existing really vast data sets to create this fake content. Um, It can be video, images, audio, sometimes text. Um, And what's really concerning about deepfakes is that they can be used to defame targets, impersonate individuals, which a lot of us have probably seen on different YouTube videos lately that have been peddled around the media, um, blackmail elected officials, but it can also be used in conjunction with some cybercrime operations. But not all forgeries are deepfakes, and you sort of touched on this in the question. Most forgeries that we see are created by humans using software editing tools. So if you think about using Photoshop, um, that's most of the content that we see. These techniques often use speeding of a a video, slowing, pasting, or recontextualizing an image or a video. And this allows for sort of this good enough content that can be really quickly created by users with very little skill that has quite a high impact. Two examples that we've sort of seen recently that um, a number of the listeners will probably remember is a video that came out in May 2019 of the US House of Representatives Speaker Nancy Pelosi. And this showed um, her basically slurring her words during a news conference um, that made her appear as if she was intoxicated or unwell. And basically what had happened is somebody had slowed her voice down to 75% and then altered the sound level back up so she sounded normal but sounded like she could possibly be intoxicated. Another example we saw was CNN journalist Jim Acosta. A video was edited so it looked like he was acting aggressively towards staff at the White House. Now, in both of these cases, uh, people really quickly identified that the videos were false, but it didn't really matter because they still had an impact. 
So in regards to the Nancy Pelosi video, it went incredibly viral um, and was actually used by many of her political opponents to bolster this narrative that she was unfit to serve as Speaker. And in regards to the Acosta video, it was actually tweeted by the official account of the White House press secretary to justify this decision to deny Acosta a press pass. And um, what's really interesting about this tweet is that the video actually remains posted to this account currently still. So the difference between these deep fakes and cheap fakes, often what really only matters is the message, the context and the audience, rather than having a really highly convincing forgery. So those two videos you mentioned, were they quite sophisticated or did somebody do them in a few hours and just slap them online? So they're actually really simply done. Um, In the case of the Pelosi video, it was simply slowing down the video so it looked like her speech wasn't quite at a normal cadence. Um, And it it was enough to sort of um, place the video out of context and then to be able to pass off this narrative of clearly she's slurring her speech, either she's intoxicated or there's something wrong with her, she's not fit. Um, in the Jim Acosta video, it was um, this use of, it was basically freezing a couple of frames in the video itself. So it looked like um, Acosta had um, placed his hand on a White House aide for a much longer period than the original video had showed. So it really exaggerated some of his movements. It was, I guess in a way, very simple editing techniques, but they're very small edits that go into a much more sort of sophisticated narrative of somebody is unfit to have this because of X, Y, and Z. Mm. So Catherine Hannon's already sort of touched on this, but how much are deepfake technologies a sort of threat to us and our societies and our democracies? Can you think of any ways in which this technology can be a positive or a public good? Yeah, Danielle, I think that's a really important point. And the starting point in a lot of this is deep fake technology is just another technology. And like most technologies, there's nothing inherently good or bad about it. And in fact, there can be a lot of good applications for deep fake technology. So from the really kind of silly <laughs> style of, you know, using an app to let you swap your face with Taylor Swift if that's what you <laughs> want to do on a Sunday night to more intriguing ways of using deep fakes for entertainment. There are allegedly plans to bring James Dean, the Hollywood heartthrob from the middle of the 20th century, back to life for one more film um, using the power of deep fakes to recreate uh, him as an actor. And also, and this is an intriguing one that um, people sitting at home uh, doing a little bit of homeschooling in these times of COVID-19 might be interested in, a lot of the ability uh, of deep fakes to generate text, generate audios, uh, videos, is actually something that could be tailored for educational purposes. So to create really quick, authentic, tailored um, education videos, uh, which could be deployed at scale. So There's a lot of good that can happen from deepfake technology and the technology that underpins or the processes that underpin deepfakes, deep learning, which as Hannah mentioned just before is a subset of artificial intelligence, that's also got a huge amount of economic and social uh, promise. So as Hannah said, um, machine learning, deep learning, it's about machines crunching through vast data sets um, at scales and speeds that a human could never do. And that has the potential to reveal uh, medical discoveries, do pharmaceutical drug testing. Uh, There's a great use case where um, environmentalists have been using deep learning techniques to identify and catch poachers. So these technologies are really potentially quite powerful for economies and societies. However, 
like any technology, there's a dark side. And particularly for cyber criminals, for foreign state actors that want to do bad things, they can exploit and weaponize deep fake technology. Uh, and, and as Hannah alluded to, uh, that will exacerbate, exacerbate and amplify a lot of problems that we already have. Cybercrime, huge problem. Deep fakes gives a new tool to the arsenal of cyber criminals. Disinformation and information warfare, there are a lot of different ways in which that can be executed and a lot of different tools and tactics. Deep fakes opens up a new avenue uh, for the agents of disinformation and, and information warfare to accelerate and to make their campaigns more potent. Thank you for that, Catherine. Hannah, can you talk us through the different types of deep fakes? For me, one of the most interesting parts of reading and reviewing the report earlier this year was what you both did in sort of cataloguing the sort of about these seven different types of deep fakes. And I, I was unaware of a lot of them, including things like face swapping and lip, lip syncing and motion copying, etc. So can you briefly sort of run us all through exactly what those seven types are? I think probably the most important thing to preface this is that the seven categories or techniques that we sort of delve into in the paper are definitely not exhaustive. The deepfake sort of technology is incredibly malleable and as that technology progresses, we'll start to see other applications to it that can be used by people. Really sort of, I guess, what we're seeing is four categories. So still images, videos, audio and text. And then across those four categories, there are seven techniques that we look at that sort of range across in complexity and polish. So one that you mentioned was face swapping. Um, this is actually probably one that our listeners will be more familiar with. So there are apps like Zao and FaceSwap that allow users to insert the face of a target or their face onto another body. Um, this can either be in an image or a video, and it's reasonably rudimentary usually. Often we would see that the physical images that are produced rather than the videos are more complex um, and, and far more convincing copies. The next sort of category that we look at in the paper is this idea of reenactment. So this is the ability of having the face from a target source uh, actually mapped onto a user. So allowing the user to manipulate the target's facial movements and expressions. Uh, a really good example of this was actually um, produced by some researchers at the Technical University of Munich, and they mapped facial movements onto Vladimir Putin's face. Um, now, when you combine this reenactment technology with lip syncing, it actually gets to be a little bit more interesting. So lip syncing, as many of our listeners will be familiar with, is just the ability of being able to copy mouth movements over to a target video. If you combine this with um, a fake voice or completely fraudulent audio generation of, uh, let's say, Vladimir Putin, this technique can be used to make a target appear to say false statements and look like they're saying those statements at the same time. Last year, there was a video that was produced um, that had the UK politician Jeremy Corbyn and Boris Johnson effectively endorsing each other as their preferred candidate for the 2019 UK election. Then we sort of go into this strange base of uh, motion transfer. So being able to map somebody's body movements onto a person in a source video. So I can have a source video of somebody dancing and I actually want a video of me to be doing that same dance. Well, I can transfer those movements of, say, Bruno Mars um, doing a certain music video onto my own body and I can look like I'm dancing like Bruno Mars, which I certainly in real life absolutely cannot do. <laughs> um, and it looks like an authentic video recording. Then we also have image generation. Now, this is where a user can create entirely new images. 
This can include a face of somebody who's never existed, an object, a landscapes, rooms. Um, one of the more sort of interesting examples that I came across was actually fake Airbnb listings, um, paintings or um, products that people had listed online that never actually existed. Um, so the generator that they used basically created new products that were then list online for sale or rent, as was the case with the Airbnb listings. Then we sort of got these two last categories that we looked at, and it was audio generation and text generation. Now, audio generation is one that has made huge leaps and bounds in the last couple of years, and this allows users to basically create a synthesized voice from a very small audio sample of an authentic voice. So take, for example, if I was to take a recording of um, Catherine's lovely voice for, let's say, a couple of minutes, I would then be able to um, map the different cadence in her voice, all of the different sort of nuances in the way that she speaks, and then be able to type into a computer and have her say the words that I wanted her to say instead. Now, this technique can be used with the lip sync tools that I mentioned before um, to make a video appear like they're saying something else. And then lastly, we've got text generation. And this is um, actually a category that when we came across sort of blindsided me because it wasn't something I was thinking about when I was sort of looking at deepfakes and that idea of images and videos that you so often associate with it. And this is the idea that one user or a very small number of users, if you want, can generate artificial text, including short form comments. Um, so think about comments on social media or web forums, or in some cases, long form news or opinion articles that are completely artificially generated from the computer. Comments particularly were effective as there was this really wide margin of acceptable error for online content. If you think about when you're on Facebook or Twitter or Reddit and you're looking at these threads of content, you're expecting to see spelling mistakes. You're expecting to see people use strange abbreviations or maybe there's some in-jokes there that you're not quite privy to. So there's this really large acceptable margin of error and it means that while face swap apps and um, having, you know, videos and images quite sort of flashy and draw the media's attention, it's this text generation that can be really insidious and, and create this idea that maybe there is a movement of people um, who are interested in a certain topic um, that actually isn't the case. Can I just quickly add there, I think exactly to that point, Hannah, that a lot of the commentary and analysis and indeed hype about deep fakes focuses on this idea of, you know, the one good deep fake that's going to be a perfectly undetectable video and will change the course of an election because it suddenly looks like candidate A said something or did something or danced like Bruno Mars um, and they win or lose the election because of that. But I think that you're right, that the text Gen the text generation deepfakes are possibly the most pernicious and insidious. And the reason for that is if you think about why a bad guy wants to use a deepfake rather than a cheap fake or just some manipulated image or a decontextualized actual real photo to, to, to prove a point. And that is because the key advantage of deepfakes is they're using deep learning and they can do things quickly and at scale. They can take humans out of the loop and they can automate the process of, of deception or disinformation. And so when it comes to creating that, that idea, as you said, of there being some type of big groundswell of opinion being reflected in online comments uh, on Facebook, for instance, um, you can do that using deep learning and doing deep, using deep fakes 
to make it appear like thousands of people agree with you and they can be automatically generating text in real time. Um, and that's something we just haven't seen to date in information operations, which generally rely on human trolls. So if you can take those humans out of the loop, that's going to be cheaper, faster, and potentially more powerful than than what we've seen before. So why haven't we seen that then in information operations? Is it still difficult to mimic humans online in terms of having conversations and being involved in debates? Or are we seeing little bits of that already, Catherine? So I think we see a lot of let's call them dumb automation tools. So yeah. a lot of kind of Russian campaigns in particular use bots to amplify messages. So picking out different comments that maybe authentic users, real people have said, and then amplifying them at scale. And that's a, a bot or a, a robot that's doing that. You don't need a human there. We have seen less of the deep fake text generation. Mm. Uh, and I think that's the potentially a coming wave so just last year in late 2019 for instance i came across a paper that had been sponsored by um, one of the chinese government's r&d priority centers which was a paper done by researchers in china looking at the potential for using deep learning tools uh, to essentially create automatic trolling so the tools that this research paper was looking at would find ways to identify what was trending or, or sorry, to identify and distill the kind of key points of a news article so the machine could kind of figure out what were, the, what were the key points in this article. And then the next step was figuring out how to then speak about that in a way that would maximise attention. Now, it's kind of hard to see what research applications uh, for automated trolling there are that would do some good in the world. I have thought about it and other researchers have thought about it it's not that's not really a great value add um it's not a public good. kind of no it's kind of either screaming into the void or disinformation right so i think it's quite likely that those engaging in the arts of disinformation are thinking about this and investing in tools to do it we haven't yet at least not that i'm aware of or that has been picked up actually started to see this happen Interestingly, though, some of the tools that would enable you to engage with people at scale are being used by, um, for instance, the CCP in China, perhaps for a, for a good cause, which was their response to the COVID-19 um, crisis. Um, interestingly, one of the main ways in which uh, lockdowns were implemented and people screened was using a natural language processing tool and an automated chatbot that would call people up have a conversation to them about what their risk factors were and then form an assessment based on what they said to that bot about their risk and their need to be quarantined. So that's an example of natural language processing getting to a point where it can be kind of rolled out across a society and all natural language processing means is the that humans um, normally speak in quite weird ways that are difficult for computers to understand. Um, to this point, computers have not been good at kind of listening to a human and distilling the key points of what they want to talk about. The next step, um, then if you're a kind of going to weaponize that or use that for bad purposes, is use the insights that the natural language processing chatbot tool gains from talking to people to then perhaps using it to manipulate them or blackmail them or figure out where they're psychologically vulnerable. We haven't seen it much yet, but I suspect that could be the next wave in information warfare. So this dovetails perfectly with my next question for you, Hannah, but Catherine, please also jump in at the end because I think there's a lot of meat here. So 
One thing that's quite interesting about Australia is, as far as I'm aware, and please either of you correct me if I'm wrong, we haven't seen uh, deep fake technology sort of used in a sophisticated way yet in terms of political or foreign interference in Australia that I'm aware of. Is that right? As far as I'm aware of as well, no, we haven't seen a a really sophisticated deep fake um, attempt in Australia. Now, the majority of deepfake content that we are seeing in the Australian context is actually, interestingly, pornographic in nature. So all around the world, people throw around this sort of number quite a bit, but approximately 90% of deepfakes that are being discovered rest in pornography. Um, So we're seeing a lot of that. Um, The other side that we're seeing is a lot of sort of political satire. Actually having somebody Photoshop an image is usually good enough to get the job done. So you don't need that deepfake process in there to be able to speed along. As Catherine sort of alluded to earlier, where deepfakes really come into their own is where you can automate a process. So when you're producing content that is really targeted to an audience and it needs to fit a specific context, especially when it's an image or um, even more complex, a video, where you have so many different moving parts, we're not really quite there where deepfake technology is super useful. It's still much better uh, to be having somebody sort of still inside of that that loop, having the human inside the loop. Now, what's interesting is that, and again, we touched on it before, there's this obsession over video or this this perfect image or video that's going to fool everybody and everyone's going to have the difficulty telling the difference and, oh, God, how are we going to come up with the technology to be able to tell the difference? But once again, it, it's not about trying to fool this really discerning audience. It's trying to produce content that's good enough. So... The truth is that um, the videos we've seen are far more effective to have the human in the loop because this good enough content is effective. In my opinion, some of the most concerning examples that we've seen around the world, and thankfully not in the Australian space yet, again, is this this deep fake text content. So being able to have this high margin of acceptable error, being able to create almost like a groundswell of opinion, which it doesn't matter if it's deep fake to start off with, because the end result you get is real people bandwagoning on. Recently, we saw that um, Trump's you know recent tweet, Liberate Michigan, saw this huge turnout of people who were quite unsettled and aggressive um, that were able to be basically mobilized by a single tweet. Well, what happens if you have somebody who maybe tweets something out and then you have this groundswell of false opinion that supports it? Well, it doesn't matter if it was false support to begin with, you still have real people on the other end of it. Hannah, then let's talk about Australia. Where do you think the soft underbelly is for Australia in this space? What could malicious actors who want to disrupt or divide uh, an election or um, a sort of societal issue? You know, before both of you started talking about the text element, I just assumed that it was the sort of video image space, but it sounds like actually we should be sort of looking into and putting our resources towards thinking about the dangers of the text area. Well, I guess when you're sort of talking about a soft underbelly, there are, depending on who you are in society, you're going to be concerned about different things. So for those in the business community, they're really going to be looking at some of the cybercrime that's happening. They're going to be looking at how deepfakes can value add to some spear phishing campaigns to really some great effect. In terms of myself, sort of what I've been looking at, I think it really sort of, um, I've been focusing on election cycles. What happens if you can convince a populace en masse um, to vote in a particular uh, direction? What happens if you decide to mobilise and let's say 
24 hours or eight hours before an election when you don't actually have time for the government to respond and debunk something. Mm. So that's that's definitely what I've been looking at. To just jump in there too, I think I think in the information warfare space, the text-based element's really important. But I think, as Hannah said, in terms of cybercrime, for instance, it's those audio-visual elements of deep fakes that might be quite important. So uh, last year, for instance, there was a UK cybercrime incident where someone impersonated the voice of a CEO and said, transfer me some money. And because it sounded like the CEO, the person who was targeted, transferred the money to the cyber criminal. So I think if you think about all the cyber, an act of cybercrime or hacking is, is convincing a system or convincing a person that you're the authorised user and then making that system or person do something that benefits you as a cyber criminal. And deepfakes can really provide a new tool for that type of deception that lets you get into a system. So in terms of phishing, you don't need to send an email that impersonates someone. You might give them a ring and use a, a, a voice generator to really make them think that you are the authorised person within the organisation asking them to do something. There's also some early evidence too, which suggests that some deep fakes, particularly the visual ones, might fool some biometric systems. So if we think that at the moment facial recognition is considered pretty foolproof, a lot of us use facial recognition to access our phones or our computers. If deep fakes make that no longer a viable form of authentication, then there could be a bit of a lag time between when we realise, oh, this is a problem uh, and, and do something about that and that the lag time being in between before we realise it's a problem, cyber criminals will jump in there and exploit it. I think the final thing, though, from society's perspective and from a democracy's perspective, I actually think one of the biggest problems with deep fakes is fear of deep fakes itself. So the idea that as we find more and more examples of deep fake technologies being used, and as people are talking about this more and more, there is a risk that we start as a society to doubt everything and that it can be a really handy political claim to point to something and say, even if it is authentic, how do you know it's real? How do you know it's true? It might be a deep fake. And so that's the broader risk I think that we face here, not just instances of digital forgeries, be they deep or cheap fakes, but also a sense of malaise and a sense of confusion uh, that says that nothing we see or hear or read anymore is necessarily true. And I think that's possibly the most destabilising and dangerous thing for a democracy like ours. So how do you then tackle it then, Catherine? I mean, it sounds like trust is, is going to be an enormous issue here. I mean, where should Australian policymakers who will have to spend more time working on this space in the future, where should they be directing their resources. So I think the most important thing is to act soon and act fast in order to reassure people that the deep fake apocalypse isn't happening. And there are a couple of ways you can do that. I think the most important thing is is emphasizing a lot of what we've been talking about is that there's nothing particularly new or special about forgeries. We've been dealing as a society with forgeries since I guess the first cavemen decided that they could write on a stone tablet. Um, with a little bit of rock, and they were impersonating their cavemen next door, right? Forgeries have been with us for a long time, and we've always figured out new ways to deal with them. So if you think, to use slightly more realistic examples, something like the photocopier, right? Now, in response to the ability for, you know, everyone can own a photocopier if they want, and that can be a problem for, say, authenticating that money is real. 
So we fixed that problem because now we have really sophisticated banknotes. They're made out of polymer. You can hold them up. They've got those little windows in it. If you give me a $10 note, uh, Danielle, I'll look at it and if you've made it at home, I'll know pretty quickly. Uh, same thing with um, identity documents, right? If I show you my birth certificate, you would either want to see that it's an original because it has a certain watermark on it or you might want to expect that it's been certified by a third party that we trust, like a JPEG. So I think we need to be thinking and governments need to be thinking, what are the next wave of anti-forgery systems that we can put in place? Now, importantly, those systems like a JP authenticating something, they don't require technologies of detection. So they don't require you, Danielle, to be an expert in handwriting analysis or in you know, document analysis, forensics, to, to see that my birth certificate is real. They just require you to follow standards and norms that any human could, which is let's check to see, you know, if these processes have been followed. And I think that's the area we can look to for deepfakes. So we create a culture that when um, we see images or we see text that we look for things like perhaps a digital watermark, uh, evidence of a digital chain of custody. Maybe uh, we also think about the source and whether or not it's come from a trusted intermediary. So if we see something on ABC News, maybe that's something that we know we can trust. If something comes out of the court system or the AFP or parliament, that's something we can trust. But if it comes from a random Twitter handle that we don't even know who's sitting behind it, well, maybe that's not something that we can automatically, you know, seeing isn't automatically believing, even if it is an audiovisual material that we're used to kind of relying on. So I think it's those social norms putting them in place soon so that people have that level of trust. So on your points about digital watermark or the digital chain of custody, I really like those ideas. Does that put the burden back on social media and internet companies to actually enact things like this? So it does to some extent. I think there's a role to play for social media companies, for instance, in providing those authentication services where, you know, get the tick on Twitter if you can prove, you know, if Hannah can prove that she's Hannah, then Twitter will say, yes, this is Hannah. And I think that's important because that also means, you know, we can start to trust the source a little bit when we should. So there are some proposals out there, for instance, that, you know, Facebook and Twitter should automatically screen for deep fakes and some go so far as to say, boot them off the system. Don't let deep fakes in there. I think that's not necessarily the most productive way forward. For one, you know, there are a lot of authentic reasons and reasons of creativity and political speech that people might want to use uh, deep fake technology to create an image or to create a video and that's that's fine there's possibly a role though for identifying and labeling content and saying look this was computer generated but even then that could create a little bit of a false sense of security because as we've been talking about um, and as Hannah said right at the beginning the power of misinformation and deception often isn't the one image or the one piece of material you're seeing it's about its context it's about the message that it's conveying and about the broader narrative it's fitting into. So even a perfectly authentic photo of someone, so say I could take a photo of a person beating another person, true photo, if I tell you that that is a pair of actors doing that, that's a very different construction that you might take from that than if I say, oh, that's an Australian soldier and that's a civilian that they're beating and that happened you know, last week during a training exercise. So just because we can detect deep fakes doesn't mean that we can stop deception. So I think we should be thinking less about that detection side of the equation and more about the, the norms around 
critical thinking and also authentication of material. And that's not just something for social media companies to do. That's something for society and governments to do a lot of heavy lifting in. And I think sort of what, Catherine, you've touched on there is this really important and very difficult part about behavioural change and about target-hardening society so that they're able to engage in far more sort of central um, processing of the content that they're receiving. So rather than sort of seeing a video and thinking, oh, well, you know, they kind of look like they're informed, they've got a bunch of arguments, yeah, sure, I'm going to forward it on to whoever. They're engaging with the content, they're looking at, okay, well, does it have like a verified symbol? Who is this from? Does this line up with sort of some of the other things that I've heard? And one of the really important points is that everybody has the ability to either engage in this central processing where they're really engaging with content or peripheral where they're looking at all these other cues and maybe they're getting distracted before they're forwarded onto a friend. And it's it's really about training society to be able to engage better with the content that we're seeing because you're not going to be able to completely stop all of the deepfake content from coming through, but you are going to be able to better target harden the rest of Australia and the rest of the world to be able to be able to see that information in context. All right, let's end there. Thank you so much uh, for joining us, Hatter and Catherine. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Daniel. Thanks for listening to this special episode of Policy Guns and Money. You can read the full report, Weaponize Deep Fakes, National Security and Democracy, below. If you have any thoughts on what you've heard today or the publication itself, you can tweet us at ASPI underscore org. Be safe and we will be back with another episode soon.